Would you pray with me tonight? Lord, we just thank you for your goodness, for your greatness. Um, we've sung of your goodness, but now we've also sang of your greatness. You are great. You're not just good to us. You are beyond our comprehension. You are expansive in so many ways. You're wonderful. You are the creator of all things, and we acknowledge in this place your glory and your goodness. Our lives are completely submitted to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. I'm so used to saying things like, hey, why don't you say hi to somebody as you grab a seat? And you're welcome to do that, but just wave for me uh, if you do that. Wave at somebody. Uh, as Fabi mentioned, back, back, Fabi and I were talking before the service started, and we said the last time she hosted a service was the last week before the world flipped upside down. Not only the series we were in, but also when it really did. And, uh, and we were just talking about that, that. That seems in some ways like yesterday, and also it seems like a million years ago. But she mentioned something that maybe startled some of you. She said that tonight we're starting a new series in Leviticus. If you haven't heard that from last Sunday, you heard it tonight for the first time. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, why, when you're trying to get people to come back to church, would you start a series in Leviticus, right? Like, it's a very natural question to ask. Like, why would you do this? And that's a really good question. I'll, I'll attempt to answer that in just a moment. But first, let me say this. Um, there is an idea, there is a statement that I've heard people say over the years, something that I understand why people say it, I understand the perspective, and I'm not critiquing it, but it is an interesting perspective that gets revealed when people say it. Um, over the years, I have heard people say um, that they found God. They'll be telling their story, and they'll say, well, and this was about the time that I found God. And, and I understand what they're trying to say when they say that, but sometimes I wonder, like, what do you mean you found God? Like, um, there's that moment in the fall when you slip on a pair of jeans you hadn't worn all summer and you find 10 bucks in your pocket. Are you talking about that? Like suddenly you stumbled onto God? Uh, I remember one time when uh, Sherry and I were raising our girls, uh, our, our oldest daughter Morgan, she took off in a supermarket. We lost her for a little while. It was her fault, not mine. Just going to say that. Um, and we found her eventually. We heard her giggling and running down the, down the aisles. Is that what we're talking about when we talk about finding God? Uh, is it when a dog has wandered away and suddenly you discover them three streets over from your house? Is that what we talk about? I, I, I bring this up because I think when you consider us in all of our humanness, in all of our brokenness, finding God... God in all of his wonder, when, when you think about it in those terms, it seems a little interesting, doesn't it? Like we found him, or could it possibly be that God found us? I think that's an important reversal that we need to think of. I think that's probably more likely. Uh, I, I think it's probably more, more our, our consideration that God is the one that's finding us, not us finding him. And when you begin to see your life from that perspective, when you've had that moment of realizing that, that God might be searching for us instead of us searching for him, you will look at your life in an entirely new way. You will see over the course of your life places where God seemed to be calling you out, seemed to be intersecting with your life, organizing events, orchestrating certain things to take place so that you would see him clearly. You can see that in other people's lives. There are some of you, you know people, maybe this is you. you, you see folks and you go, I can see God's fingerprints drawing you to himself. I can see his hand on your life. We begin to see things through this, that, that, that lens and things begin to shift. The same is true of the Bible. When you begin to look at the Bible and you see a God who we're not looking for, but a God who is looking for us, you begin to see the Bible in entirely new ways. 
So, so for example, instead of seeing the Bible as a book that explains who God is, what you begin to see is the Bible is this book that unpacks the experience of a people who are encountering a God who is searching for them. When that happens, when that shift takes place, some of the most confusing and mundane biblical texts begin to come to life in an entirely new way when you see it from that perspective. And that brings us to this study that we're jumping in, in the book of Leviticus. Um, now, for those of you that aren't familiar with the book of Leviticus, and I don't assume that everybody is, um, those of you that aren't, the, this is an entire book that is dedicated to rites and rituals and sacrifices, and there is blood, and there is strange stuff. I mean, there is, it is one of the weirdest books in the Bible. In fact, last week I jokingly described it as the book of the Bible where Bible reading plans go to die. Um, because it is difficult to get through the book of Leviticus when you read it. Some of the most obscure passages, some of the most misquoted passages, some of the most confusing things come from the book of Leviticus. This is a strange and foreign, weird book of the Bible. In fact, it's, it's one of the reasons why some people perceive Christianity as irrelevant or, or, as, or as sort of a prehistoric in some ways or obsolete or archaic. But what if this seemingly irrelevant text, as some people might consider, or strange text, is actually very revolutionary? What if it's actually very alive, on the other hand? This is a story that's about a God who is searching for us. And when you realize that, you discover that there's nothing about the Bible that is cold and dead. This book opens up an entirely new way for us to see who God is. It challenges us. It'll change us. I believe that studying Leviticus will breathe new life into to your understanding of who God is, which is why for the next, I would say several weeks, but for the next maybe 52 weeks, now, now I'm going to go 52. The next 19 weeks, we're going to be walking through the book of Leviticus and diving into its depths. So if you have your Bible handy, I want you to open up to Leviticus chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 1. And uh, as you're turning there, I also um, want to just give you a, a little bit of information about art and history before we open up the book. Some art and some history as it relates, relates to Leviticus 1. Uh, a few years ago, my family and I, we took a, a painting class in Newburgh. It was a, we were on vacation uh, visiting our family here in Portland. And, uh, and so we went, to, we went to Newburgh and we did a, an art class. And, uh, and we, we, we painted, and it stirred up all these things that I had kind of forgotten from my high school uh, classes in art. And um, it was this amazing time, and I got really inspired, and I thought this was a really, really great thing for us to, to be doing as a family. And I remember I took so much time on my painting, and, and especially the beginning parts of it, and we're following this instructor and doing what they're, what they're telling us to do. And uh, when we got done, when we got done with the whole thing, I had painted this beautiful landscape. Uh, it was uh, clouds that I spent too much time on. I had to hurry the rest of it. But these beautiful, amazing clouds. There were these trees that were in their autumn colors. There was this pond with a little grassy knoll. And it was this beautiful picture. And, and if I were to show it to you right now, if I was to bring it here and show it to you and ask you to draw conclusions about it, there are all sorts of things that you would, you would think of as it relates to this picture. You would maybe assume that I was painting the landscape that I was looking at, that I was, I was staring at the pond with the trees and on the, the clouds and the sky, and I was, I was painting that actual thing. Or, or you might think that that's a favorite place of mine, that I chose to paint this place that is a particular spot that I like to go to. You could, you could draw all sorts of conclusions about that by looking at the picture and say, well, based on that picture, here's what I think was going on when Brad painted it. But the reality is, what was going on when I painted it was nothing original. There was a person who was standing in front of me who was painting the exact same picture, and that person was copying the picture that another person had painted. There was probably a copy of another picture that somebody had taken. 
I have no idea where the place was that I painted that day. I had never seen it before. All I know is I just copied that other person and I painted the thing that she was painting and the story is actually really mundane. Really beautiful picture, I think, personally, but really mundane story. Now, this has all sorts of implications on the book of Leviticus because first of all, you can look at Leviticus on the surface without the context and you can make all sorts of assumptions about what's happening in the book of Leviticus. But it's not until you begin to understand the full story that you really start to see what's happening behind the surface. The second thing I want you to understand is that pictures or images are incredibly powerful. They're valuable. Uh, we have this saying, we always say that a picture is worth what? A thousand words, right? A picture is worth a, a thousand words. It's really fascinating for us to recognize that the Eastern cultures are very image or picture oriented. Eastern cultures lean heavily on symbols. They even lean on rituals to tell a story. And oftentimes the words that they use, they use their words to paint some sort of picture. Now you, you contrast that with Western culture. In Western cultures, we are very word and logic oriented. So we use words to, to prove a point. We create lists. We create logical statements. That's how we use words. So, so in an Eastern culture, people might try to explain something complex, not by making a list and giving all sorts of definitions, but they might try to explain something complex by giving you a picture and then saying, it's like that. That's how you understand the complexity. It looks, you look at this thing. In the East, they might use symbols. They might use rituals. This is important for us to understand because the Bible emerges out of an Eastern way of thinking. It, it, it arises out of the East, which means the Bible leans heavily on pictures and symbols to tell a story. This idea alone, when we conceive of this, this one idea will fundamentally change the way that you read the book of Leviticus. When you realize that symbols and pictures and objects actually point to something more complex. Now you're going to read this book and you're going to see the rituals and the symbols. And instead of seeing these things as an instruction book, like God was saying, here's all the things I want you to do and you're just supposed to do this and follow along and it's somehow supposed to be logical. Now you see that there's a picture and this picture, whatever it is you're reading in Leviticus, is actually pointing to something else and explaining something else. Which then means you start asking other questions. You start looking at the details in the book of Leviticus and you start saying, well, what's really happening here? What's really going on here? What is God really teaching us? Is there something beyond these things, these details and instructions that we're reading? Is there a picture that he's painting on the other side of this? So, so there's the art part of this. And now let me just give you a little bit of history. And I mean a little bit of history. Um, Leviticus is the third book of the Old Testament. The third book in a group of writings called the Torah. But where it falls in the writing of the Old Testament is critical to understanding why it matters. Um, the first book, Genesis details the origins of humanity and humanity's relationship with God. And we are introduced to, in the book of Genesis, we're introduced to a God who is unlike other gods. That's one of the primary themes of Genesis. And we are introduced to a, a people who are being formed who are unlike other people. That's how Genesis begins. 
It's, it's in Genesis that we meet Abraham, the father of Judaism, and the generations that then follow him. We discover that there are these people who are to live with God, the one true God, in a very unique sort of way, differently than the rest of humanity. That's Genesis. Then you come to Exodus. And in Exodus, we get critical details that sort of help us understand why the book of Leviticus exists. For 400 years, actually 430 years, the people of Israel live in captivity in the nation of Egypt. They went there originally for refuge. Shortly after that, they become imprisoned. They become enslaved to that culture. And for 430 years, they live as slaves. Longer than our country has existed, the nation of Israel functioned as slaves in the nation of Egypt. It's a pretty incredible thought when you think about this. Generation after generation, they've been hostages to this nation. And then in Exodus, they get liberated. That's the story of Exodus, the Exodus. They're leaving Egypt, and they're headed for the promised land. The problem is this. These people have never really lived life on their own. They've never been a people for themselves. They've been living embedded in Egyptian culture. They've lived and watched in a way where all they've, they've done is observe the Egyptians around them. They just do what the Egyptians do. They eat what they eat. They dress the way they dress. They do everyday things the way the Egyptians do everyday things. And most importantly, they define their relationship with God. They relate to God the same way the Egyptians related to their gods. This is huge. The Egyptians related to God or the gods the way that all people on the earth related to gods during this time period. And the central means of communicating with the gods was the use of sacrifices, all kinds of sacrifices to endless numbers of gods who were fickle and angry and temperamental. And so the people of Israel have been observing this, and so their relationship with God has been influenced and shaped by this Egyptian mythology that they've been observing. So when we come to the book of Leviticus, the people of Israel, they are in the desert. They've escaped Egypt, and now they are learning how to live, but more importantly, now for the first time, they are learning who their God is. They're learning who their God is and how they are to interact with and understand who their God is. This God who is different than other gods, who is shaping a people who are unlike other people. That's what's happening in the book of Leviticus. He's teaching them who he is. So we see this in the very fir first moments of Leviticus. I want you to look at verse 1, chapter 1, or chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, it says, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. I'm going to pause here. The word offering, when anyone's going to bring an offering, the word for offering is the Hebrew word korban. Um, now, this word has multiple dimensions to it, multiple meanings. When we think of the word offering, we think about that thing we used to pass, the plate we used to pass, pass in church before COVID. Uh, we would call that the offering. In the Hebrew understanding, the word offering actually means more than just something that we're bringing. It actually brings also with that this idea of bringing something, but we're bringing something so that we can draw near. The word korban means drawing near. So we might read this this way. If any one of you wishes to come near to me, if any one of you wishes to draw near to me, then this is what you do. 
when you meet somebody who says that they haven't found God or that they're searching or looking for answers or they're seeking, what they're saying is, I have not come near to God yet. But notice this. When God says, if any of you, notice that he doesn't, he doesn't say, if any of you who grew up in the church want to draw near to me, here's what you do. This is important for us. If any of you who don't have a pass would like to draw near to me, here's what you do. No, he says anybody. I, want, I just want to point this out. It's kind of a side note, but way back, all the way back here, when God says anybody, he's saying whether you are rich, middle class, or, or, or poor, whether you look this way or that way, whether you grew up in a Jewish home or you're just along for the ride, from day one, God says anyone can draw near to me and have relationship with me. Anyone, if anyone wishes to have relationship with me, this is what it's going to look like. But here, here's the catch. Um, people inherently understand that there's something broken about us. Uh, th this is true. I, I don't think there's anybody that, that really is being logical in our world today, where if you have a serious conversation with them about the world we live in, I don't know anybody that says, you know, people aren't broken. Not when you really think, think about it, not when you really talk about it. The brokenness of humanity, especially these days, is on full display. Amen? Um, people understand this. And, and there's a feeling that we get, there's an understanding when we feel, even in ourselves, when we've done something wrong, when we've done something we know that is just broken, whether you're a person of faith or not, there's a feeling that we get. And the Jews had a word for this feeling. In fact, there are two words that we're going to see throughout the book of, of Leviticus. And the first one is, is tumay, and the second one is tehor. Um, tumay is the, the Hebrew word that means unclean or, or unholy, and it's this word that defined how you feel when you feel guilt. It's a word that defines how you feel when you feel shame. It's the sense of, I know that I'm broken, I know that I'm not enough, I know that there's something wrong, I know that I've messed up. That's this word, tumay. And then tehor is at the other end of the spectrum, and it means clean. It means holy. And, and the point of this is that there were times for the Hebrew people, when they felt tumay, they know that they're unclean, and they realize, and this is true of so many people, they realize that God is tehor. They want to get close to God, but they know they are tumay, but God is tehor, God is clean. They understand their imperfection and God's perfection, and they realize this. And so when people realize this then and even today, most people think, well, something needs to be done about this. So if that's you, what God is saying in Leviticus is, you bring an animal from the herd or from the flock. And then we continue on in verse 3, and it says, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. Now there's some interesting details I want to explain here. Um, first of all, notice that you bring meat. This is kind of an interesting thing. Why did they bring meat? What was the point of this? Well, meat was a precious commodity in this culture. Um, we live in a country where we meet with every meal. It's something that's very prevalent. In fact, sometimes it's a little too prevalent, if you ask me. But, um, but we eat meat all the time, right? It's constantly around us. But in this culture, meat was this special thing. For us, it might be like lobster, right? It might be like Copper River salmon that comes to Costco once a year, something along those lines, right? There's this thing that's unique and special. Meat was expensive. And God says, when you come to me, you need to bring meat. Not only that, notice what he says in verse 3. If you bring a male, it needs to be a male without defect. And what is that all about? Well, imagine that you have lambs, and you've got this one lamb with three legs and missing eye, and, and his name is Lucky. And you bring that. Hey, God, meet Lucky. 
my three-legged lamb. What does that tell you about your passion or your love for God? So God says, no, no, I want your best. I want the good stuff. Why? What's going on? Why is God saying, I want you to bring something expensive and I want you to bring the best of what you have? Well, it's like God is saying this, I want to know that this costs you something. I want, I want to know that this costs you something because I want to know that this relationship that you want with me, that this, this connection that you desire with me, I want, to, I want to know that it matters. So you bring the best that you have. And then in verse 5, he says this. Actually, verse 4, he goes on, he says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar. By the way, there's going to be a lot of blood in this series. I'm just going to give you the heads up right now. He'll throw the blood against the sides of the altar that's at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So, so, there's, so there's this tent area that the people of Israel would set up, and there's this wooden altar, and there's a fire that's going outside all the times. And there would be the priest that was standing there, and he would wait there in the morning, and the priest would be there to meet you, to help you with your sacrifice. And, and the idea was that this priest, who'd done all of these things that we're going to learn about in Leviticus to make sure that he was Tehor and not Tameh, he would do all of these things to help you with your brokenness and your regrets and, and all of the things that you're walking through. The priest's entire job was just to help you with your sacrifice so that you could do what verse 4 said here, and that is that you put your hand on the animal. There's a picture being painted, Right? Think about what we were saying about pictures and images in this culture. You put your hand on the animal, and this is where we encounter the word atonement. The word atone means to cover up, and I want you to hang on to that word because we're going to come back to that a lot. It's an idea that, that, is that this person is placing their sins on this animal, on this bull, on this lamb, on this potential bird that they might have been bringing in fact, it's generally believed at this time that when you laid your hands on the sacrificing animal, that you would probably say some sort of prayer confessing things that you knew were broken about your life. In fact, some scholars actually believe that some of the Psalms are prayers that were prayed at the altar before the priest. So back to the word atonement. It's going to get repeated, and it's going to get explained and expanded over and over again. Um, if you skip to chapter 17, and you don't have to skip there in your Bible right now, I'll just read this for you. Um, this is where it gets a little more interesting. It's even a little stranger. But in, verse, in chapter 17, verse 11, it says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So what God is saying in chapter 17 that he's beginning to say in the first chapter is, is that the, the way he set this up is that the blood of the animal becomes a substitute for your own blood. And the idea is the animal is getting what you deserve. So you would come to the temple area and you would bring this animal, the finest, most expensive thing that you had, and you would lay it on the altar and you would put your hands on this animal and you would confess your brokenness. And, and the, the Hebrew word that talks about placing your hands isn't just simply you putting your hand and touching. The Hebrew word literally means that you would lean on the sacrifice. You lean on this animal. This is rich. You lean on the lamb. You put your weight on the lamb if it's a lamb that you've brought. 
for some of you, I hope there's a light bulb going on. You know, some of you, you've maybe wondered, why do we sing these songs in church sometimes about blood and lambs? And now you're like, oh, there's something more going on with all of this, right? What is this? You lean on the lamb. Back to chapter 1, verse 6. It says, then, by the way, I'm moving fast tonight because I wrote way too much sermon, just so you guys know. I apologize for this. I told you I get excited about Leviticus. Verse 6 says, Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." So, so I just want you to imagine this, this scene in all of its goriness. I think at this point, you know, you think about the priest, you think about the people that are standing before the priest. They, you're not standing in this moment unless you're serious about your brokenness, unless you're serious about understanding the distance between you and God. If you're standing there with this priest and you're up to your elbows in blood, no one does this passively, right? You know you're serious if you're, if you're in this spot. Why is God so interested in this sort of thing? I truly believe, and this is one of the first things we begin to see in Leviticus, is that God is not interested in passive pursuit of him. He's not looking for people who are just sort of passively pursuing him. He is looking for people who are passionately and actively pursuing relationship with him in the same way that he is pursuing us. So, so you look at this and you go, okay, well then why all the specifics? I mean, do you read this and go, okay, is God specific about the system for approaching him? Well, we're barely into chapter 1, and it sure seems like he's specific. Is there a sense of strong order here? Yes, there is, right? Does God say, does God say, when you come near to me, do whatever feels good to you? Kind of an interesting question, right? You do what feels good to you. No, that's not what God says, right? God says, I want it this way. But that might cause you to wonder, why does he do that? Why is God so specific? In fact, some people really struggle with the Bible because of the specificity of what's read in Leviticus. So why does God get so specific? I want to give you three reasons. And if you're taking notes, you can write these things down. They're not going to be on the screen. Um, and, and so I just encourage you to do that. And if you're not taking notes, you can just try to memorize them. But first, this is why. The first thing that God is telling us through the specificity is that he's different. He's different. And let me explain this. People had rituals. This was not new. People made sacrifices. The Egyptians made sacrifices. People all over the world during this time were participating in some sort of sacrificial worship of God, but they were sacrificing to these unknown gods, these fickle gods, these angry gods. And, and some people say, well, well, this is so primitive, right? Why are they being so primitive? Well, these are primitive people living in a primitive time, and they had a primitive way of communicating with the gods around them. So God says, you're in this place where people are using all of these sacrifices and you want to draw near to me? Well, if that's the case, then let's be specific. Let me show you, instead of you randomly worshiping gods and thinking you know the way, if this is the language you speak, let me show you how you come near to me using a language that makes sense to you. And he's distinguishing himself from this pantheon of gods and myths that were driving people's behavior. So God first says, I'm giving you these specific things because I want you to see that I'm different from all the other gods. Everyone's sacrificing. Yours are going to be different because I'm different. 
That leads to the second one. Secondly, he does this because he's interested in us. And I think this is a really beautiful part of Leviticus that we often forget about. Up until this point, these people had been living these desperately insecure lives around their deities. They don't know what their gods want from them. They, they don't know the gods, you know, the gods must be angry. The gods must be crazy. The gods are punishing us. People would be struck dead or fall dead. Or There were all these explanations for their life that, that revolved around deities that were oriented with the, the, the natural world around them. And so there's so much confusion. There are no rules. There are no structures. So these fickle gods who could change on a whim, they created a constant latent insecurity in the lives of humanity. We never know what the gods are going to do. The gods are always angry. The gods are always mad. The gods are going to flip on us. That's what they're wrestling with. So God looks at this and says, what would it be like for you to live confidently with me? What would it be like if you could actually know where you stand with me? What would it be like if the next time you made a sacrifice, you walked away and you knew that we were good? See, he's interested in us. He sees the guilt and the shame, the things that people are living with and, and the insecurity that they're wrestling with, this nervousness around the gods. And he says, listen, I'm going to be specific with you because I want you to know where we are. I want you to walk away and know that we're good. And I want you to be able to walk away in that shame and that guilt that drives you in your life, that stuff that plagues you. I want you to know you've been cleansed from it. And so the second reason he's specific is so that we know this, we experience this. And then third, and this is really beautiful, he's specific because he's pointing to a future. The first human beings, Adam and Eve, they sin. They step outside of God's boundaries. God casts them out into the Garden of Eden. Once they sin, they are no longer tehor. They are no longer pure and perfect. And we read that Adam and Eve, they are feeling tumay. They're feeling, they're feeling guilt. They're feeling shame. They, they realize their nakedness. And I want you to just notice in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, this is right after they've sinned, right after they've sinned. In verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them or covered them. What does clothing do for your body? It covers you, right? So what did God do? Right in Genesis chapter 3, God covers them. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God took an animal, and, and in order to cover them, you had to kill the animal and take the skin, and the Bible says that God covered their shame. So God covered their shame in the very beginning. And if you were Adam and Eve, and you're in this scene watching this, you see this as it goes down, as a life was taken, you would have known, if you were there where they were, when they were there, you would have seen exactly what they saw and felt what they felt, and that was, that animal got what I deserved. It's interesting, that's how it starts. Then you move to Exodus. And there's this intense scene where God is going to move through the land of Egypt with judgment. And he tells the people of Israel something very specific. He says, I want you to survive this judgment, but here's what you need to do. You need to sacrifice a lamb. And you need to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your house. And I will pass over you. I will go over you. That's where we get the term Passover. And when God sees the blood of the lamb, it was a sign of faith. And in that moment when God passed over, you knew that the lamb had gotten what you deserved. There's this progression that we begin to see. 
With Adam and Eve, there was an individual sacrifice. This animal was, was taken so that I would be covered as an individual. When Israel was in slavery in Egypt, they experienced a Passover where this lamb was sacrificed to cover a family. Your family in a house was being covered. In Leviticus chapter 16, we're going to get to this in a few weeks, um, there's the Day of Atonement where we see the covering of the sins of a nation, and you start to see that there's this progression that's taking place in the story of the Bible. With Adam and Eve, it was individuals who were being atoned for, being covered. With, 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 the, with the, the crisis in Egypt and the Passover, now is a family, a household being covered. In Leviticus chapter 16, now there's a nation being covered, being atoned for. There's this progression where it's pointing somewhere. You start to see this pattern. Maybe already you're starting to realize there are things in the Bible that we've been missing for generations. This book is not some rough collection of stories detailing man's search for God. This is a book crafted over thousands of years detailing with incredible wisdom and accuracy God's search for man. And it tells one massive story. And it continues. We go from individual to family to nation to this another lamb. But this time it's not an individual. This time it's not a family. This time it's not a nation. This time it covers all of humanity. If you turn to John chapter 1, Jesus comes onto the scene. Jesus, the Son of God, walks the face of the earth. And as he begins his public ministry, we read this in John chapter 1, verse 29. It says about John the Baptist that the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of what? The world. And you see this progression. This whole thing is pointing somewhere. He takes away the sin. He atones. So, so if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is a New Testament book that sorts through all sorts of Old Testament stuff and makes sense of it. And I just wait till you see this. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says, For since the law is but a, has, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Isn't this interesting? The word draw near was the Hebrew word korban, this idea of drawing near. He says this, this, this annual reminder of sins. It, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to do what we want it to do. It's a shadow. Th this idea of a shadow is kind of interesting. Um, I, I have a shadow. You can discern certain things about me from my shadow. You can probably get a relative sense of my size and my build. Um, you could watch how active my shadow is and determine a few things. But if you walked up to somebody and they said to you, do you know Brad Williams? And you said, well, I've met his shadow. They would think you were crazy, right? It doesn't make any sense. They would say, no, that, a shadow, you might know a few things, but that's not, that's not Brad, right? God says, that's the system that you're looking at in Leviticus. The system isn't the point. The system isn't the end. The system is the shadow. It's a sample of the real thing. So let's go back to the priest. If you're the priest who steps outside the tent every day and you wait for people to come, and I, I, I sort of wonder, were there people that came every day until <laughs> they ran out of meat? <laughs> the priest stands there every day and one person walks away and another person walks up. You think about a mundane job. I know some of you have jobs and you go, I don't know if I can go do this another day. Can you imagine if you were a priest in Israel? 
every, every day, the same thing, moving to the next person, the next person. Here's what's interesting. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. And there's no break, there's no chair, there's no break room where you get to go eat your lunch. It's just all day. There's just the priest working. But then you come to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12 and it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because of what he said on the cross. It's finished. It's finished. Which raises a phenomenal question for us. Remember how this whole thing starts. If any one of you want to draw near to God, if any one of you want peace with God, if you want to know him, if, if you want to be connected to your creator, it's a question. Leviticus opens with a question and an invitation. Do you want to be near to God? Are you near him? Do you have peace with God? Are you connected to him? There's a very good chance that you could feel the opposite right now. Whether you're in the room or whether you're watching online, there's a good chance you might feel the opposite of closeness with God. You might feel the opposite of peace with God. There's a good chance that you're longing for something and you can't quite put your finger on it. And what do you do when you feel that way? Well, in our culture today, we don't have altars and sheep and birds and bulls, but we've got jobs and degrees and institutions and relationships and possessions. We've got all of these things that we can ritualistically engage in, hoping to feel close, hoping to know peace, hoping to settle this thing that's in our hearts. And there's something in us, even when we pursue these things, that says, I wish that something about all of this that I'm pursuing would solve this thing that's inside of my heart. And what we see emerging from Leviticus and connected to the New Testament is that there's only one thing that actually can, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the only way. And I don't know where you are in this moment with Jesus. I don't know if you've been walking with him for years. I don't know if, if you're here and you're watching because you're curious. I don't know if you're disappointed with Christianity or you're confused about stuff in Leviticus and so you're just kind of standoffish. I don't know if your faith has grown stale, if it's sort of cold and lifeless. I don't know. All I know is this. God is incredibly specific in saying that Jesus is your hope. And all of this asks the question, are you leaning on the Lamb? Have you put the weight of your life on the Lamb? The, the dissatisfaction, the inner turmoil, the insecurity, the boredom, the shame, the guilt, if it's there, if any of it's there, if it comes and goes in any of those moments, the reason it's there is because we've taken our weight off of Jesus. All of it is about us leaning on him. So today, for some of you, this might mark the beginning of a return. Maybe you've gone back to some rote rituals in our secular society. Maybe you've been engaging in the mythology of the modern-day Egyptians. Maybe you've been making sacrifices at our society's altars. 
It's time to return. And today, some of us need the simple reminder that God is still pursuing you. God is still chasing after you. And for a few of you, for a few of you, it's time for you to say yes to Jesus because you know that he is your only hope. It's time to say, God, I get it. I get it. I see what you've been pointing to all along. I'm going to lean in and lean on you. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? This is going to be fun, I hope. I hope you guys come back next week. <laughs> There's quite a few chapters in Leviticus. It'd be really bad to be here by myself. I'm going to offer the benediction. May your eyes and your heart be opened to discover the God who is searching for you. May you draw near to him the way that he is drawing near to you. And may you lean on the lamb, trusting him with your whole life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for enduring some Leviticus a little bit longer than we've been. But have a great evening. Feel free to hang out with some friends. Say hi to somebody. And we'll see you guys hopefully next Thursday. Or if you loved it so much, you can come back on Sunday. We'll see you then. <laughs>